Well, good morning again. I, uh, my name is Chris Standridge. I am the campus pastor here at Crossroads. And uh, it, again, it's been a privilege to be able to preach. Uh, I'm getting more and more challenges from you each and every week. Like, come on, Chris, bring it. You guys want me to preach hard. And so I'm doing the best that I can. I, I pray that it's ministering to you. I know Josh puts a lot of effort into his sermons as well. We truly want to bless you with the exposition of God's word. And we want to we point you constantly constantly back to the word of God because that's where our foundation lies that's where ultimate truth can be found and so hopefully you've been enjoying that and hopefully it points you to our savior just a little bit more each and every week i want to before we start out in our sermon this morning i want to start with a simple question because we are coming down to crunch time as we work toward december 25th and so my question is this how many of you are starting to feel the pinch and the pressure of christmas you're starting to feel like, man, we, we're a week out now. I've got seven days to finish up my shopping. I've got to figure out what to get my spouse. I've got to figure out what to get my kids. I've got to figure out what to get my grandkids. And for some of you, you maybe have to figure out what to get your great-grandkids. And that can be a stressful thing, especially when it comes to our spouses, right? Like if we've been married a long time, sometimes it's hard to know what to get that person that you've been living with for years and years, if not decades. And folks, if you don't get on the ball, you're going to end up giving away fruitcakes and socks and all of the little novelty gifts that you find on the discount rack at Kohl's. You know what I'm talking about. You've been at that place where it's like December 23rd and you're like, oh, I have to find something. Well, I'm telling you, I have, I have parents that are in their mid to late 60s now, and they're those kinds of people where I just don't know how to shop for them. You ever have those people in your life? You're like, I just don't know how to shop for you anymore. I've gotten you everything that I know to get you. Well, my parents are a little bit that way. Um, they kind of have everything that they need. They're simple people. They don't they don't want for anything. They don't need many things. And so it's like, what do I get people that kind of have everything? Because if they do want it, if they do need it, they'll just go out and buy it at this stage in their life. So every Christmas comes along and I'm racking my brain. What do I get my dad? This guy has everything. And so some years I just get him power tools thinking to myself, when he dies, it's going to come to me. Um, so this is not a bad gift to give. It's kind of the gift that gives back to me. But no, like seriously, every year I, I don't know what to get my parents. And so last year, instead of getting my dad in particular what he asked for or what he needed or maybe even something practical, I went a totally different route and I got creative and I bought him a little kit called 23andMe. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have ever tried that, but I got the basic kit and what it really is, is it's, it's, a, it's a DNA test kit that helps you to investigate and explore your family history and your family ancestry. And, you know, I really know almost nothing about my extended history beyond my grandparents and maybe a little bit about my great-grandparents. And I sensed through conversation with my dad over the years that he didn't know a lot about our family history either. And so I got him this DNA kit. He takes the test and man, he starts digging in to our family history. And what he found was a long line of interesting characters. Some of them scoundrels, some of them not so respectable, some of them Christ followers, many of them not. And all the way up to as recently as my grandfather who got kicked out of the army for drinking too much, I've got some characters in my family tree. And it went all the way back 500 years to Switzerland 
and Germany. And I thought that was a really cool, like, uh, I guess, uh, man, just understanding of where I came from. And it was really neat to see my dad get into that. But you, you know, you think about scoundrels and you think about characters in your family tree. Every family tree has broken branches, don't they? You know what I'm talking about? You, you, you probably have that person in your family tree in your mind already. I'll tell you what, I met one of those people that was probably a broken branch in their family tree. I didn't meet him, but I, uh, I came across his path last night. I went to the Browns game last night up in Cleveland. It was a really good time, but we had this guy that was sitting about two or three rows behind us. And man, you could tell he was a broken branch. That guy came in having drank way too much before the game started. By the time the game started, he was already in his seat shouting profanities. The game hadn't really even started yet, and he's cursing. He's saying everything. And I just remember thinking, because I knew I was going to preach this sermon, I remember thinking to myself, that guy is definitely the broken branch in his family tree. Like his family must think to themselves, oh man, here comes John. He always brings the language. He always brings the drama. And I think every family has one of those people. You know, those, those people that maybe they drink a little bit too much at Christmas parties. Maybe they suffer from foot and mouth disease. Maybe they always bring the drama with them wherever they go. Maybe they're just kind of, their life is kind of a dumpster fire of bad decisions. Maybe they always find themselves in toxic relationships. And for whatever the reason, they can't get out of their own way. Now, there might be some of you in here this, this morning that think to yourselves, you know what? I'm kind of that person. I thought by now I would have it all figured out. I thought by now I would pull it all together. I don't know why I keep stepping in the mess. I can't figure out why I can't get my life straightened out. I'm kind of ashamed of who I've become. I've burned a lot of bridges. I've hurt a lot of people along the way. I have a lot of people in my family that don't really want anything to do with me. And every Christmas when my family gets together, it's just a reminder to me of where my standing is and how I measure up. And if I'm being honest, I'm really not the cream of the family that rises to the top. Now, If any of you can relate to anything that I just said there, I just want to tell you congratulations because you're messed up. And guess what? We're all messed up. We are all broken people. We're all fallen. In fact, scripture tells us in Romans chapter three, verse 10, he says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Merry Christmas, you're messed up. In fact, I want you to turn to someone beside you or behind you, and I want you to look them in the eye and say, you know what, I am messed up. Go ahead and do that right now. I am messed up. (laughs) Feels good, doesn't it? It kind of feels good to confess, to confess to someone else. What they already know to be true. In fact, some of you are confessing so long, I may just let you go. (laughs) You know, but it feels good to just admit what everybody else around you already knows. We're all messed up. We're all broken, fallen creatures outside of Jesus Christ. And the fact of the matter is, is that every one of our families have messy histories. We all have messy pasts. 
And we all contribute to that. One day, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, they might look back at us and they might say, man, I can't believe grandma and grandpa. I can't believe they did this or that. But here's the good news. You're not alone. Because the Savior that came to us on Christmas morning, 2,000 years ago, who was wrapped up for us as this gift that would ultimately bring salvation, you know what? He came from a messed up family tree as well. And I want to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about how Jesus had kind of a a messy family tree and the, the, the grace that comes from it. And I think oftentimes when we think about Jesus and the nativity, we think about this silent night and we sing about holy night. And we have this picturesque moment where Mary and Joseph had this peace and quiet in a stable, in a cave somewhere, and Jesus never cried. And it was just this peaceful little worshipful moment. And it's been packaged for us so beautifully and marketed to us as this silent, holy night, and it's picturesque. But sometimes I think what we fail to do is we fail to stop and realize the reality of what happened that Christmas evening, that Christmas morning. We don't think about how gritty it was. We don't think about the dirty details. We don't think about how messy it was, how our Savior came into this world. You know, I don't know how many of you got to see your children born. I got to watch three of my daughters be born. I was in, I was in the delivery room when my wife gave birth. I've seen some things, man. <laughs> and I'm telling you, when I observed those things, they did not feel holy. And it was not a silent moment, right? Like, like, if, like childbirth, the incarnation of anyone, like the, like, like the introduction of anyone into our world, it's a messy process. And I think that, you know, we serve this Jesus. We, uh, as we unwrap the incarnation of Christ this morning, I want to point to you how Jesus Christ, our Savior, how he came from a messy background to fix our mess today. Because we sure have messed things up, haven't we? It hasn't taken very long, but man, mankind has a way of just really stepping in it. We have a way of really making a mess of some good things. And so I want to point your attention this morning. We're going to start out in Matthew chapter 1. And then you might think this weird, but we're going to jump all the way back to Genesis chapter 37 after that. And then we're going to spend a majority of our time this morning in Genesis, uh, the latter parts of Genesis. But I want to start with the genealogy of Christ to show you how Jesus' history was messed up and how it gives us hope for us in the midst of our mess Today, So we're going to start in Matthew 1, starting in verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 6. It says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now you're going to start seeing a lot of names, so just follow along. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, we're not going to read through all 42 generations. We're not going to read all of those names. I can see you right now like, oh my goodness. I might fall asleep right here and right now. It's getting warm in here. But I do want to point you down to verse 16 as we get all the way to Christ. It says this, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 more generations. Folks, there's a lot of names that are listed right there in Matthew chapter 1. And I want you to realize some of the who's who that is in Jesus' family tree. Do you realize that there are five women that are listed in his family tree? That's unheard of. That they would recognize women, that they would esteem women to that high place 2,000 years ago and, and mention him in, 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 his, in his genealogy or mention these women in his genealogy. Two of these women were prostitutes. Uh, There were a couple of adulterers in there that were men. There were slave traders. There were liars. There were swindlers. And there was even a murder. These are the kind of people that Jesus came from. These are the kind of people that you would want to prune out of your very own family tree. You would not want these people to be celebrated as you talk about your family history. But these are the people that Matthew contributed. Um, These are the people that he listed. Now think about it. If you were going to write or have someone write your family story, you probably wouldn't want someone that was going to bring shame to your family name, would you? But that's exactly what Matthew did. And there's one character this morning that I want to, I want to kind of highlight his, his verse and I want to go back and kind of highlight his life and show you some things that we can learn from it. If we go back to the first three verses of Matthew chapter 1. Because it was probably very easy for us to skip over this one name. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. See, we have the, the beginning of the nation of the Jews. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. And we'll stop right there. This kind of shows us like where Judah fits. We're going to focus in on this one man named Judah. Now, Judah was not necessarily infamous. He didn't necessarily kill anybody like David did, and he certainly wasn't a prostitute, and he wasn't as famous as maybe Solomon and all of his riches and all of his wisdom, and he wasn't as famous as Ruth, who saved a nation of people from extinction. But Judah just may have been the most important person in Jesus's lineage. And I want to show that to you this morning as we turn back to Genesis chapter 37. So turn in your Bibles there, and we are going to fly through a lot of scripture this morning. So I hope I don't overwhelm you, but I want to give you um, a picture into his life, Judah's life. And there's basically three acts of his story. Now, if you don't know the person of Judah or the name of Judah, you definitely know one of his brothers. His brother was Joseph, and they were two of the 12 sons of Jacob of Israel. And we know Joseph. We know him well. He was the favored son. He had a coat of many colors. He was a dreamer. He ended up becoming the prime minister of all of Egypt. He became the second most powerful man in the world during that day and age. He was the savior of a very small nation of people. But what we also know about Joseph is that he was extremely hated by his brothers and they were jealous of him. And Judah was one of the worst of those brothers. Let's look at chapter 37 of Genesis. And I want to introduce you to him in verse 23. And we'll read down through 27. And it says this. And so when Joseph 
when he came to his brothers, this is his brothers out at pasture. They're watching and they're tending over the sheep. The sheep, and then Joseph shows up. And so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his of his robe and the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and they threw him into a pit and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat and looking upon or uh, looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Um, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? See, the brothers, the nine brothers had already decided, or nine or ten brothers had already decided that they were going to kill Joseph. They didn't want anything to do with him anymore. They were tired of him and his dreams and his stories. So they were going to kill him. And so so Judah speaks up and says, um, he says, what profit is it is if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let, us, uh, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our flesh. And his brothers listened to Judah. And so this is where we kind of get our introduction to him. Judah presents himself as a righteous person. He presents what I guess would look like a better alternative. But really what Judah's, you know, his ulterior motives was, I can get rid of my brother and I can make some coin on the side. We can all get a little bit richer. We don't have to kill him. And so it looks like a righteous alternative, but Judah really comes up with the plan of getting rid of this inconvenient brother in their lives. He wants to get rid of the dreamer. And he has just enough influence over his bloodthirsty brothers to convince them that this is actually a good idea. Let's actually sell him off as a slave. And now we see in continuation, look at verse 28. It says, this is what happened. The Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. End of story. Joseph is gone. Story is over. We no longer have to worry about this favorite son of Jacob. We no longer have to try to live up to his standards. We no longer have to hear about his dreams, about how we're going to bow down to him. We no longer have to worry about that stupid coat of many colors that our father gave to him. And they didn't have to shed any blood. And so Judah, he kind of looks like this genius criminal. He looks very sympathetic, but he also was very resourceful in making everybody in that situation, a little bit richer. So they get rid of their brother, they make some money, they move on with their life without Joseph, and all they have to do is they have to keep this lie to their father for the rest of their lives. They can never tell their father Jacob what actually happened to Joseph, which is not really a big deal. When you are selfish and when you are living in sin, you don't often think about how it affects other people. You just do what feels right in that moment, and that's exactly what they did. And so Judah keeps his secret about what happened to Joseph for 20 years. So this is the guy that is mentioned in the family of Jacob as as a forefather to our Savior. His name is Judah. Now, I want to look at Act 2 in the life of Judah. We're going to go further on in chapter 38. So Judah goes on with his life. He builds his family. He moves on from Joseph. He is out of sight, out of mind. And he moves on. He, he marries a woman. He starts to have kids. He actually has three boys. Their names are Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And scripture tells us that the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. And we're going to see a little bit about them starting in uh, Genesis 38. We're going to look at verse 6. And Judah, he took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, 
was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now imagine that. This man was so wicked that God put him to death. So his son Ur, Judah's son Ur, marries a woman. Her name is Tamar. They don't have any kids. And so Tamar is left to be a widow, and she has no children to pass on an inheritance. No children, no boys, I should say, that can take care of her in her older, her older days. She has no security for her future. And my question in this moment is, how bad do you have to be? How wicked do you have to be that God would actually kill you off? Well, the middle brother, middle brother, Onan, doesn't learn very much from his older brother, and we learn that he is wicked as well. Um, Onan uh, takes, takes Tamar as his wife through leveret marriage. And what leveret marriage is, is if you don't know, is it's this principle in, 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 the, in, the, in the Eastern days, um, in the ancient days, where if a, if a woman was left to be a widow and had no heir, um, if that, if the, if the, let me figure out how to say this right. If the husband dies and has no heir, then a brother or someone from the family is to marry that widow in order to give her a son, in order that the, the one that died might actually have an heir. And so Onan is next up in line. Onan takes Tamar as his bride, and he, uh, he, he cares for her, but he does not have any desire to give her children. He has no desire to give an heir to his brother who has deceased. And so Onan kind of practices this ancient form of contraception that I'm not going to get into. You can see it in verses 8 and 9. It's a little bit scandalous. But I do want to jump down to verse 10 in chapter 38. And this is what it says about Onan. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God put him to death also. The Bible says that Onan was also wicked, and wicked to the point where God had to put him to death. Now, here is Judah, the father of these two men that have now died because of their wickedness. And he kind of sees a pattern here. And he realizes, I only have one more son. And I can't, I, I can't take the risk that he might be wicked and he might get killed off as well. So Judah kind of comes up with a plan. And he tells Tamar, he says, Tamar, I want you to go back to your parents. I want you to put on your widow's dressing, and I want you to live as a widow until my youngest son, Shelah, is old enough to become a husband, and I will send him to you, and he will take you to be his bride, and then he will give you children. Well, several years go by, and Judah forgets all about Tamar, or Tamar. He forgets all about her, and she's left to live a vulnerable life of desperation with no husband. So she takes matters into her own hands. She gets resourceful. And Tamar is, is, is not about to wait any longer because she's an adult woman now and her, her childbearing years are starting to slip by and she's having fewer and fewer and she still doesn't have a husband and she knows that her father-in-law is a, a scam artist. She knows that he is uh, kind of a, a scoundrel or a shyster, if you will. And so Tamar seizes an opportunity to secure her future even if she does it by dishonorable means. Let's look on to Genesis 38 verse 12 says this, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So Judah, who is the character of our story, his, his, his wife dies. And he's, he's a widower. And when Judah come, um, was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adjulamite. And when Tamar was told, your, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep, 
She took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that, that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And so Tamar, here she is. She takes matters into her own hands. She says, I'm going to dress up as a prostitute. Uh, you know, Judah has most likely forgotten all about me and I am going to not only get even, I am going to get ahead. And so she recognizes that, that Judah is coming into town and she kind of like offers herself to him and Judah takes her up on it. And this kind of just goes to show how far out of sight, out of mind Tamar was to Judah because he didn't even recognize his own daughter-in-law when he had an intimate relationship with her. So Tamar suckers Judah into giving her, um, giving her three of his security deposits until he would pay with, a, pay with a goat for what services she provided him for that evening. And so she gets his signet, she gets his cord, she gets his, his staff. These are kind of like a, a modern-day driver's license, social security card, maybe even a passport of sorts, okay? And so all three of these were identifiers of who she just slept with and who was probably the father, who was the father of her eventual children. Tamar had a plan. So Judah seals the deal with his daughter-in-law. He goes home. He tells the servant of his to send a goat to the woman that he just had relations with. And he says, pay her this goat and get back my security deposits. Well, the man goes to her and because she's not a regular prostitute, she doesn't show up at the city gates. She's nowhere to be found. And so instead of investigating, Judah just kind of writes it off as a loss. He realizes, man, if I take this any further, then my reputation could be soiled. If I take this any further, people could know that I slept with a prostitute. So he just kind of writes it off as a loss and he lets it go. Well, three months pass And word begins to spread that Tamar's belly is growing. She's pregnant. And this alone is reason enough to have her put to death. So word gets back to Judah that his daughter-in-law, who was supposed to be waiting for his son to marry her, is pregnant. She's been immoral. And so in his self-righteousness, in his hypocrisy, he wants to have her put to death. And here is Judah the second time in his life when he has an opportunity to get rid of a nuisance and an inconvenience in his life. So in his self-righteousness, he demands that she be burned to death publicly for her transgressions. So right before her, right before her public ex- execution, she has some final words to say. And she says this, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. She shows the signet, she shows the cord, and she shows the staff. And it's clear that Judah is the guilty one. Judah is the man that got her pregnant. She presents this smoking gun and Judah is proved to be a hypocrite. He's outwitted and he's outplayed. And now he's the father of his own grandsons. If that makes any sense whatsoever, he's the father of his own grandsons. And so twin boys were on the way. And so I want you to understand this is the very man. This is the very man who sold his brother into slavery. 
He lied to his dad for 20 years about what happened to Joseph. He was a dad that raised wicked sons. He was the father-in-law who failed to take care of his uh, his daughter-in-law. He was the self-righteous hypocrite who had sons out of uh, prostitution. This was a man that was listed in the family tree of the Son of God. This makes no sense in my mind. Why does Matthew highlight this guy? Like, couldn't he come up with a better substitute, a better family member in the line of Jacob? I mean, if you, if you think about it, Judah wasn't even the firstborn. He wasn't even the secondborn. He should not have been the one that was recognized in the book of Matthew. So I want to go to Act 3, and we're going to fast forward 20 years, and we're going to kind of go further into the story of Joseph. So Judah's transgressions are clearly beginning to catch up with him. Uh, But he still has the lie of Joseph. His father still doesn't know what ultimately happened to Joseph. And so Joseph is long since gone. He's out of the picture. He's out of his brother's lives. He's all but dead to them. And he's all but dead, especially to Judah. And Judah is trying to forget the sins of his youth. He's trying to move on. And so here's Joseph. He's now the prime minister of Egypt. And he's been elevated to the second command of all of the nation. And ultimately kind of in all of the world. And uh, a, a, a a great famine has crippled this whole region to the point where everyone was going to Egypt to get food supplies for their families. So Meanwhile, here's Joseph. He's in Egypt. He's he's in Egypt. He's been raised in Egypt. He has been educated in Egypt. He now talks like an Egyptian. He even walks like an Egyptian. That's funny stuff right there, right? Am I right? He's walking like, thank you. Thank you very much. He's walking like an Egyptian, right? And so Judah and his nine brothers, they have to go to Joseph in Egypt and they have to get supplies. And so Jacob sends them on their way so that their families will survive. And so to make a long story short, they get to Joseph and they don't know it's him. And Joseph immediately recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. So Joseph starts messing with them to see if they have changed at all or if they're still wicked like they were so many years ago. So to make a long story short, Joseph kind of like forces them to bring his youngest brother Benjamin back. Benjamin is the only other son of the favorite wife of Jacob, Rachel. And uh, he is the favorite son at this point because Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead. And so when Joseph sits down to a meal with his brothers who don't recognize him even still, he gets so emotional that he can't handle it anymore. So let's look at Genesis chapter 45. I told you we were going to cover a lot of ground this morning. Genesis chapter 45, I want to read this encounter that Joseph has with his brothers, the first five verses. It says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. They were shocked at the turn of events that had just happened. Like they did not see this coming whatsoever. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sold me before you or sent me before you to preserve life. Imagine what went through Judah's mind in that very moment. Man, I cannot get away from my sins. 
They keep chasing me down. Every time I think I've got this lie covered up, every time I feel like I've crossed all of my T's and dotted all of my I's, it's like I'm found out every time. And here we go again. Joseph is alive. So Joseph becomes the savior of the story. He's the Old Testament picture of Christ because he offers grace to his brothers. On those merits alone, you would think, you would think in this family of 12 brothers that Joseph would be the one that we would recognize in the lineage of Jesus in the book of Matthew. But we don't, for whatever reason. We would think that it would be Joseph. And so, fast forward a little bit further. Jacob is now at the end of his life, and he's looking to give a blessing to one of his sons. And that blessing was a very serious deal. It meant wealth. It meant power. It meant influence. It meant leadership in the family. And he, he looks to his sons, and he kind of lines them all up. And at this point, Joseph is reintroduced to the family and to his father. Chapter 49 of Genesis, verse 8, we see where Judah falls in this, I guess, opportunity of blessing. If you look at verse 3, you see the name of Reuben. Verse 4 says Reuben is unstable as water. So Jacob passes over Reuben, says you will not get this blessing. Down to verse 5, you see Simeon and Levi, those two brothers, the second and the third born. They will not get the blessings because Jacob says you are weapons of violence. You will not represent this family. Then we get down to Judah in verse 8, and he says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is who gets the blessing. In spite of all of his sins, Judah becomes the one that is blessed. He's the one that is favored. Judah becomes the tribe that the lion of Judah would come from. Think about that. He is the messed up man that would bring the merciful Messiah. How powerful is that? And here's what I want you to take away, and we're closing up really quick. This is the story of grace. I love this story because... Judah does not get what he deserves. The only one that should have gotten what he deserved was maybe Joseph. But Judah does not get what he deserves. And the beauty of that is that the story of grace is that God came into our mess to redeem our mess. And God redeemed the mess that Judah had made of his life. And this is the goodness of God because each and every one of us in our lives before Christ, we are Judah. We are swindlers. We are adulterers, we are liars, we are cheats, we have turned away from God, we have rebelled against him, and we, what we deserve is not what we get when Jesus offers us grace. So Judah did not get what he deserves, what he did get was grace. Sometimes what goes around doesn't always come around. Sometimes you don't always get what you deserve I think for us, it's easy for us to say, man, Judah demand, we demand justice for Judah. Like, look at the life that he lived. He does not deserve any of this blessing, any of this favor. He doesn't deserve to be listed in this genealogy. But Judah didn't get what he deserved. He didn't deserve grace. He didn't go looking for grace. That's the amazing thing about this. He did not look for grace, but grace found him. And just like Judah, man, our only hope has nothing to do with what we have done or what we can do. It's what's already been done for us. 
Grace gives you what you don't deserve. You think about that old hymn, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that can pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. I bet you if Judah had heard that hymn so many years ago, that would have resonated with him. And I know many of you, as you hear that old song and it's familiar to you, you smile and you're like, that resonates with me. Because I needed that grace. Folks, we need that grace in our life. That grace that is greater than all of our sins. And Judah must have felt it his absolute lowest when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. But Joseph, because of he was a picture of Christ, instead of getting revenge, instead of getting even or ahead, he just offers grace. And that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus brings life from death. Grace preserves life. And only because Judah realized the severity of his sin could he recognize the depths of God's grace in that moment that he received that blessing. And folks, until you recognize and you understand the seriousness of your sin, you'll never grasp the full grace that God has extended to you. You'll never grasp or unwrap the beauty of Christmas until you understand the grace. Jesus came from a messed up past. Judah is just one example. It came from a messed up past to fix our messed up present. That's the beauty of Christmas. That messy family tree brought beauty and brought grace to us. Let's pray.